Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, part of the Shadowland season of Stolbun Institute, we feel grateful to be joined by architect, writer, and motivational speaker Keller Easterling. Okay, motivational speaker is my own superlative and nobody in their right mind wants to be considered one, but the way Easterling perceives the world adeptly navigates its varying scales, finds value in both the fuzzy and the quantifiable, the chaotic and the precise, and then somehow distills this complex, supralinguistic way of seeing into language. It's impossible to not feel motivated listening to her speak. From New Model's inception, sensitivity to scope, complexity, and emergence has been central to our thinking. In her new book, Medium Design, Knowing How to Work on the World, Keller Easterling articulates a truly 21st century framework of engagement for a time where every scale is visible, but the sheer complexity is immeasurable, reminding us that deterministic solutions have always been an incomplete response to the problems of a messy, indeterminate world full of interplay. I'm Lil Internet joined by my co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Our guest today is Keller Easterling. This episode is brought to you by Stolbun Institute, which supports and coordinates contents across outlets in a time of increasing media atomization. So check your temperament and let's get into it. We're very excited to be joined today by Keller Easterling. She is an architect, writer, and a professor at the Yale School of Architecture, where she leads the Master of Environmental Design program. She is also the author of several books, including, to name just three, Organization Space, Landscapes, Highways, and Houses in America, Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space, and, most recently, Medium Design, Knowing How to Work on the World, which was published by Verso earlier this year. Keller Easterling, we're so thrilled to have you on the New Models podcast. It's a pleasure. I've, I've been admiring your work. Well, you very much informed our own structure, so it feels like this strange devirtualization to be speaking to you in real time. Keller, as a way of beginning, could we ask you to reprise for our listeners some of the geospatial concepts that underpin your work? For instance, this idea of extra statecraft and what you call spatial products, and how these concepts give us an alternate map or framework for thinking about human-defined territories beyond just what we see on Google Maps. And maybe in this, this disconnect between the commonly held maps of the world and the different kind of maps that you offer with these geospatial terms, there is a key to why things look so weird? Uh, it's a wonderful question and a big one. I suppose in working in architecture, I've been trying to apply techniques and practices really from theater to architecture. So it is taking things from a kind of nominative register to an active register, looking not just at objects, but looking at the ways that they interact. So that has really been all I've been doing with all these different subsets of evidence. But 
something like a spatial product is moving architecture away from you know the making of something with shapes and outlines to being able to see how to work on a repeatable formula as is reproduced in space um, commercially by the millions of acres all around the world, the things that are changing the crust of the earth and trying to figure out how to work on them. And in terms of the kind of weirdening of the world, while all of those things are presented as if they were absolutely rational expressions with the bottom line in mind and so on, and, and you know, sensible business people are working on these things, it turns out that they are really fueled by some of the most irrational desires and puffy fictions. So it has seemed to me, even as a professor, that it's my job to present to my students a really irrational world, a world that through its love of solutions and quantifiable proofs and so on, ironically, has sort of created a world filled with failures and well, or clashes between those solutions that are easily manipulated by all sorts of forms of authoritarian power and psychotic leadership, but also are fueled by fiction and primitive, crude urges. And to present a world that, you know, while we think it is information rich because of all of our digital apparatus and so on, is actually quite information poor and again, primitive and crude quite frequently. So all of that is trying to look again past the nominative to the dispositional, to the active, to the temperament, and to try to work in that register as well. One thing that's so great about your writing is your ability to give very material examples. I wonder if there's anything that comes to mind as exemplary of what you were just describing. Well, some of those sorts of spatial products that I've been looking at range from everything from the agricultural field of repeatable suburban houses to the repeatable formulas for entire world cities that are the entrepots of global capital and the kind of engine room of labor abuse. And so making that really vivid has been part of what I've been trying to do, to bring forward that evidence even to our theories about how we think about how to act on them. You know, there is this sense that part of the weirdness comes from there being a mismatch with the 20th century framework, and everything seems to be spilling over beyond it. In medium design, you ask readers to see through systems to the relations among the different things they claim to contain. I find this really helpful as you're suggesting that we start from a place of spillover. So using this model of relations between things, how would you say the real map has shifted over the past 30-some years? Well, I was trying to say in this book that it seems that there are some very stubborn habits of mind. Maybe they are what one might think of as 20th century, but I think it, I was sort of saying the kind of a you know enlightenment modernist way of thinking a culture that prizes solutions and manifestos and quantifiable proofs and 
elementary particles and Turing complete world, you know, and the math is so responsive and there's sci-fi music playing in the background and culture wants to reward you for this, you know, and throughout your whole life been told you should have the right answer, that this is the thing that will provide confidence that will galvanize politics. And I mean, the 20th century, it's true, is just a comedy of the ways in which the quantifiable proof for the new emergent technology should replace the incumbent one and the statistics will cure traffic engineering, you know, and on and on and on. And so, no, the world doesn't kind of stand by and wait for organizations to curdle and get lumpy and be impossible to parse. That's not the moment when you're rewarded. But this book, Medium Design, is trying to say, no, that's the moment of innovation. That moment when things get very lumpy is a moment that's more information rich. The moments when things have been strained to be divisible by data or to be only one species of information are the more information-poor organizations, the more vulnerable, the more friable organizations, and that organizations that have spatial and digital and heavy and ethnographic and epidemiological and all kinds of information that where there's a, a protocol of interplay between those things then you're starting to have sufficient information to work. And quite frequently, what you're working with are even the failures and cast-offs of that habit of mind that wants to have, you know, the absolute answer. I was, yeah, I, I noted this one quote, I guess it was Latour that you were referencing, talking about modernizing modernization. And I'm wondering... Is that desirable? Is that generally what you're striving for with medium design? I, you used it in scare quotes, so I wasn't sure if you were questioning the whole possibility of it. Yeah, I just didn't. I was using it because it just shows the persistence of that habit of mind. You know, uh, you know, why would he have to say? I mean, it's fine, but I mean, well, why would he have to say the modernization of modernization? It's still, <laughs> it's still that same idea that one must have successive rather than coexistent thinking, you know, that, that something else must take over the other thing or supersede the other thing. And But isn't that modernized modernization accounting for all of those things, but maybe not abandoning all the, the lessons of modernism as well? I, I, sort of, it seems to me almost like there's a straw man of this like, you know, big, dumb modernist that still exists where I think that maybe doesn't actually exist anymore. And I'm wondering, yeah, if there's somewhere in between. Uh, maybe, maybe you're right. I mean, I think what Latour really meant was just that he, he was wanting all of the technologies that had been part of, that, that he wanted human and non-human things to be considered when addressing environment, that that would be, whatever, an emergent update of some sort. And that, you know, and that he wanted to consider all kinds of technologies in uh, addressing climate change. But I, I, I still think it's worth our always catching ourselves up at those moments. You know, when, when your editor 
inserts the word radical into things when you're, you know, when you're, when, you know, or when you're, somebody wants to say post something, you know, like, I think it's just good to just stop for a minute and see if that's really, or if that's just something that's been hammered in as a habit, you know. Why are we so tied to having these breaks? Why is there such an attraction to that? Just because it's exciting and dramatic? Or is there something else there? I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think it's a stubborn cultural habit and uh, it's associated with uh, a violent binary. This will kill that, kill the father. It's, it, it's, it's a... It's deeply ingrained obsolescence and replacement. Yeah, I mean, it's a deeply ingrained habit that eliminates information. <laughs> you know, it eliminates a technology in order to be smarter. It tries to eliminate information in order to be smarter, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, I always think of a lot of that kind of thinking. It's like war is the core analogy, which always ends up being a good versus evil binary uh, winner and loser dynamic. But also mentioned this when you were writing about violence in in medium design. But a more contemporary framework of understanding violence is actually violence being a contagion, especially within certain communities, uh, that there's clustering effects, that there's vectors of spreading violence. And I wonder if it's a question of applying the disease model as the core analogy of how we engage with problems rather than war as always the core analogy of engaging with problems. And I mean, I think I I heard you say on a a conversation earlier this year that uh, COVID was a close example to tackling a problem via medium design. And I wonder if you think the disease analogy replacing the war analogy might be a good step in that direction. Right. Yeah, because I think sort of in response to the previous question, you know, an additional answer might have been that, you know, many people think we've adopted all these modern ideologies to replace the certainty of a god or something. And so we set it up as the Manichaean struggle between two things. And then that's also some kind of binary of war. And then everything that we do takes on that struggle for the one or the one and only and oscillating between that closed loop and a binary fight to reinforce the closed loop. But that is so different from everything about what we see, our bodies, iterative trial and error processes, a big bag of water and electrolytes and so on that's doing all these things has nothing to do with that kind of binary organization all day long. We see it. We're looking at it. Atmospheric chemicals and biological agents do not work that way. Uh, this is not the, all of the evidence uh, before us, you know, would say that these are forms of entanglement. And, and we don't even have a way to talk about this adventure, you know. I mean, you have to say war and then do a cross-through because we don't we don't have the word of for not war you know we don't even if when you see like these organizations i was trying to write about the way in which culture has always been very good at sending teenagers to war but now teenagers want to have another sort of adventure about 
biological agents and disease and atmospheric chemicals. But what are the words that are used to organize them? The something core, the environmental core, the health brigade. You can't even get away from this sort of militarization of grouping. I really liked your turn of phrase about lexical force fields. And I'm wondering if this is sort of what you're talking about here, resorting to certain types of vernacular that you know, like war vernacular. And maybe give a quick definition of that. Yeah. Yeah, a, A lexical force field. Yeah. Well, I think what you're referring to is I was trying to describe those people who are, you know, sort of political super bugs who are really good at taking lexical expressions and making them dispositional. They really are much more about activity and interplay than the assigned meanings to the words. And they lie so often that they create a kind of force field where lexical expressions don't mean anything, or they know a kind of magic way to take meaning and lies and make it active, like the lie that Obama was born outside of the United States. That's a really good lie because it's really easy to disprove. So you get both the detractors and the defenders repeating it. The superbug has that special intelligence. Like what they're saying doesn't matter. They're able to know how what they're saying will do something. It's a really special skill. You know, like uh, back to the biological agents, it's a little bit like what Trump was saying that he thought COVID-19 was a genius, like a word that he usually only (laughs) reserved for himself. But COVID-19 was because it's constantly mutating, because it doesn't give you a solid one-to-one meaning. It it's like, yeah, that's you know, that's kind of like what I do. That's why that's why I can shoot somebody in Times Square and it it won't matter. It won't stick to me. It's more about a shiftiness, you mean, in a almost magical way of utilizing language to have a certain effect. Like, I mean, it actually reminds me of this, these TikTok teens that are using cheat codes for reality. They're just somehow oh, yeah. numeric numbers that have the things. Yeah, so I do think There's that some people... some strange form of like TikTok divination where people uh, somehow discover numerical codes that they imagine have some, it's like some form of uh, it's It's nonsense. The, yeah. Just like 666, but instead it's yeah, like... Except well, it's longer codes. More arbitrary, uh-huh. yeah. More like, like the IRL cheat codes is sort of, I think, the way that they think about it, like video game logic. I mean, I think that language very often works that way, especially when you're trying to activate certain algorithms to respond to that language. There's an actual effect to using certain language that certain people will pick up, certain bots will pick up, you know, et cetera. A hashtag even oh, is a lexical so force field. though. It doesn't even have a relationship that's immediately apparent to a human language. It's like translating the code, giving it some memetic layer so that the algorithm picks it up. Am I right? Tr- understanding tr- this correctly? Trying, trying to divine the black box of life, man. Yeah, is that, I mean, right. Like, <laughs> so. that's so crazy. Reminds me also of like what James C. Scott and others have talked about where that rumor is a, a form of witchcraft because it didn't start anywhere. It didn't, it just has a, a way of can spread mm-hmm. magically. Yet there's always something in a rumor that does resonate. There's a fear or an anxiety or a desire, or there's something that's beyond the thing that's quantifiable. It's the stickiness of a rumor or its spreadability 
may or may not have anything to do with its closeness or its distance from the truth. It's a little bug. It's a little germ that can act in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and it can mutate, and it I think it draws strength from kind of random mutations where it can become yeah. much stronger than the original intention accidentally. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think here too, though, we see, wait, there's this problem with flexible language and lies. And uh, and then there's also, of course, a problem with a puritanical yes-no relationship with God. I remember reading something about the Puritans had this very personal linguistic binary relationship with God. Well, Catholicism had all of these images and iconography and therefore like Catholic missionaries, Catholicism could really integrate and make these new sort of syncretic religions with whatever was practiced with the indigenous people because there was space for that with the images Uh representing more than just the language, whereas the Puritans and this really language-based religious practice didn't have any room for analogous relationships being made from the images. And so it seems like language can have a problem being too loose or too defined. And I wonder, like, what is the best use of language in medium thinking or talking about medium design? Where does it fit in? What does the language sound like? How does one speak in that context? Um, I think I've always just been doing something so incredibly simple that comes from the only thing I... I thought was a worthwhile training that I ever got. And it was a training in theater where you're constantly aware that you are saying words and there is a lexical meaning there, but you're constantly aware that most of the information is going to be carried through some action or intention that you're playing out, not the way you're moving, but your intention to reject, to grovel, to whatever it is you're doing, that's the carrier of information. And it may be very different from what you're saying. In fact, it quite frequently is the very opposite of what you're saying. And I guess I think we get through our day in that same way too, that there's all the things we're saying, and then there's all the ways in which we are managing potentials in unexpressed ways. Um, I wanted to bring those two things together into focus because the lexical always is so dominant. Uh, So I was trying to kind of turn the sound down on that a little bit to be able to see more of the way we manage potentials in unexpressed ways. What then happens when we're forced to communicate with each other on these platforms? What happens then to that conversation when there's only text. What's possible in that space? You all would would know this better (laughs) than I do. Uh, But I'm very fearful of just the textual world, which is a strange thing to say for somebody who's relying on the written word. But I am uh, fearful also on behalf of my students in a world where their relationships with the people that they love and their family and their friends are commodified on these it's terrifying to me I can see ways in which these platforms can be used in alternative ways but the dominant ways in which they're used present some real obstacles Um, what am I doing trying to suggest again mixtures 
of information, that one would never rely just on the lexical expression, but that it's a kind of coordination between many things and many different kinds of knowledge and encounter. But the lure of just a lexical expression that moves fast and multiplies and is warm and humming in warm humming machines is, uh, it, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering, like, in what way is a protocol of interplay or this messiness, how is that different from an algorithm? Because it seems to me that that defines a relationship between things that are moving. So is medium design really algorithmic design? Is there a difference there? Yeah, I was wanting to ask you guys what you thought about my stammering over the last question. But maybe this is a way to do that. Um, an algorithm, in my way, in my thinking, is something that is still divisible with an elementary particle, data or something like that. And it has often been used incorrectly as if it was related to finding the solution to something. I mean, maybe there's a way of saying that some of what I'm talking about is analogous to all kind of the interplay between many different kinds of algorithms, if that word is used loosely. Um, I mean, a lot, some of the formation of thinking like this comes from network thinking, obviously. But for me, and you'll, you'll roar with laughter at whatever is formative here for me, but for me, I'm still thinking back to the less conservative, less predictable ideas about kind of late 20s, some 80s thinking about network, Marvin Minsky, Danny Hillis moment, you know, where the kind of redundancy and messiness of networks and the mixing of different sources for information was something that was kind of paradigm. So that mixed with the heavy world, that mixed with bodies, suddenly there were bodies in between a circuit and something else. There was heavy stuff in between the place where the information would go. So for me, it was a mixing of heavy and digital. And some of what I'm talking about is almost just third degree parallelism, you know, of where anything constitutes information. I mean, that, that's why I'm saying it, that had less to do with predictability and more to do with convulsive moments and seeing, as Bateson would say, you know, information in a tree, a man and an axe, you know, like that kind of thinking. I mean, I could also imagine that an algorithm in the way we think of them today, I mean, we're talking about also solving really human behavior-based, big, complex problems that you couldn't define accurately in an algorithm, right? Because right? you're like, playing right. with pieces that are a bit stochastic or chaotic, and you couldn't define it clearly enough to put it into a defined algorithm that would have a deterministic outcome. Right. And I think maybe that's it. I was wondering if we could shift gears a little bit more towards the land use experimentation. I don't know, or do you want to keep us along the line we were going, Carly? Dan is our hardcore determinist um, in the pod. And um, I, I am also hey, curious hey, how this no. framework, like what productive friction that causes. Because Dan is very uh, hopeful about different kinds of accelerationist frameworks and sees value and interest and is excited about them. And there is a lot to be excited about. But yeah, I almost wonder, Dan, if there was anything that did come up in this framework of algorithms that you wanted to push on. Oh, well, I mean... 
I mean, I, I guess people are very good optimizing and gaming whatever incentive structures are given to them. So I think it comes down to a question of like engineering incentives that are not gameable and that requires a black boxed algorithm that people aren't aware of. And I'm really wondering, how do you do that? I mean, for instance, uh, you talk about social capital credits that can't be monetized. I find that very hard to believe that they can't be monetized. Like someone will figure out how they can be monetized. So then the issue is that money itself is too dumb because it's a zero or a one and a more multidimensional money that took into account externalities and social costs and all these things, that would be, well, much more desirable. And to me, that kind of sounds like, well, that's a smart contract, programmable money that can include all of these other factors. So yeah, <laughs> that's long-winded. When I read that, that's sort of what I was imagining is how do you design those things, accounting for this cobra effect of having these perverse incentives where people end up farming cobras when you're trying to ask for cobra heads. So then I was wondering, like maybe those systems, they're defined by their perverse incentives, not by the incentives that are designed for. And how can you design a system, how can you design the right perverse incentives? Like I know that's paradoxical, but I wonder, is there a way... Yeah, I don't know. This is all convoluted, but those are the thoughts that I'm thinking about. I don't know if you have something to say to that. Also, generally, medium design, yeah, there's always that selfish desire. Yeah, And also something one of our community members, Brian Wolf, said, do you ever worry about the danger of these spaces? I mean, I guess I'm extrapolating a bit from what Dan's saying. Dan's like, you can game these systems. Is there a way to like premeditate that and optimize for the human brainstem that's going to game them? And then I guess like another dimension to that question is also like, how do we make sure that we create areas that won't just immediately be, that we can defend these areas from being overtaken, either by someone gaming the system or someone who is making a power grab? Well, there's a lot there. I, um, there's a lot about... Um, you know, smart contracts and other things that, that you're referring to um, that for me are still at a level of abstraction that can cause automatic harm. I mean, you've no doubt read that I had some sport with talking about some of these things. Um, even though thinking about them organizationally does model some interesting things, It's they, for me, they still remain even though they might talk about decentralizing, still remain within a set of platforms that is easily centralized because there's an elementary particle. And so some of what I am trying to talk about is not systemic. Whereas organizations with multiple variables rather than an elementary particle. Because that seems to me to do less automatic harm and because authoritarian power loves singular solutions and elementary particles. You know? What is the um, elementary particle that, um, in this sense that you're talking about? Currency or data or what exactly? Yeah, that it's all digital. Um, I mean, again, I worry about trying your patience, but there are so many other forms of value that one can mix with these things that escape those abstractions. Um, and so the organizations to me that seem most enriching are doing that. So for instance, you know, take is just a, I mean, we could scale this up, but a street, you know, uh, a neighborhood, um, there are ways to look at that as a ledger of abstracted properties that have financial value. But there are a million other things 
proximities, what I can see from one place versus another place, relationships, patterns of passage, all of that. I mean, this is kind of like urbanism 101, you know, but those things create values, other sorts of heavy values. And they might be mixed with financial values, but they can exist outside of them as well. And those heavy things can be pooled and rearranged and used to create other kinds of value. Um, So they might have heavy environmental values. They might have values related to health and a million other things. So it's that mixture that seems to provide a more resilient or more robust sort of platform from which to work. So yeah, there might be smart contracts as part of that, but I don't know if you've read this book by Adam Greenfield, that you know, there's one point where he's describing the way in which a group of people had created some kind of blockchain for raking leaves. Mm-hmm. And you know, they had managed to get themselves into a complete knot when it was just raking leaves, you know, and you can see them. I mean, you see what I'm saying. Right? I mean and sure, for yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think if anyone's offering a panacea, you should be skeptical because those don't exist. But I mean, I think when I talk about blockchain as part of the solution, it's specifically because I believe that you can, it's more possible to include these non-financial values into this elementary particle than it would be just with normal capital as it exists now. There's a potential there. I see it having it be less dumb, but you know, that's yet to be seen. I definitely do not think it's a universal solution for problems but i have listened with i've i've told you when we started this conversation i have listened with rapt attention to your various broadcasts because i'm also looking for someone like you who would speak about it intelligently in a way that it can be used because there are so many ways in which a blockchain tool could be used really fruitfully Um, most of the time they won't be i think that's safe to say but yeah, I don't think that means that we should dismiss the entire possibility. I would say maybe relatedly, though, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future, and there in that book, there's an idea of a carbon credit blockchain currency being developed. And uh, I wonder if you had read it and if you have any ideas about the solutions or type of thinking that book presents. Right, yeah. You're not the first person who's brought up Kim Stanley Robinson in relation to this book, Medium Design, too. Um I suppose there is something shared there in looking everywhere, looking at any possibility, looking at the sort of yes and continual not dismissing any one possibility at a moment that's as dire as this one. You know, in some of the protocols that are described in medium design, people tell me are really hard to understand, um, but they would very fruitfully use another way of accounting for values. Some of them are looking at ways in which, you know, one would take things that have always been financialized, mortgages and things like that, and attaching them to other heavy values that have to do with environment and risk, but changing the terms of that. So risk becomes an asset that you can trade and that grouping of risk that has to do, again, with heavy values, like how close you are to the water, how close you are to uh, having soggy ground, how, you know, all these things that we can now index, being able to combine a number of indices and wants to rate a mortgage, 
not according to racialized capital, as it was done in the 20th century, but according to all of these other heavy things. So the heavy things would, in some ways, be the most important things, the things that are most consequential in a way. But ledgers that might be able to take account of that complexity, move them quickly, deal with their groupings primarily, because you know, in the 20th century, we grouped mortgages according to the convenience of developers who wanted to have um, FHA approval 17,000 times, that dumb. These would be much more complex groupings, a much more complicated game of unwinding that sprawl by being able to group risk in different ways. It's a little bit like uh, new uh, ways that people pool um kidney donors or something like that. So there would be a moment where it wouldn't be that the automatic harm of any kind of abstraction, financial, digital, would not be the thing that's moving it. The thing that's moving it would be the heavy values, ideally, with a sort of secondary ledger that helps to manage it. Um, But to your question before, which I didn't answer, was... Yes, all of this can go terribly wrong. It will go terribly wrong. There's no question that any of this is will not work. Uh, there is nothing that will work. There's only attending to these things to try to reduce their automatic harm. Is there anything we can do about it in a material, practical sense? Well, you know, I mean, the subtitle of this book, Knowing How to Work on the World, sounds like somebody who thinks they know how to work on the world. And that's not what it means at all. I regret the subtitle, actually, because it's really referring to this phrase, knowing how, as opposed to knowing that. Knowing that is knowing the answer. Knowing how is maybe knowing something about what to do next, like the pool player who doesn't have an answer to playing pool. You can't know that about playing pool like you can't know that about being funny. You can only respond to the next thing in a branching set of reactions. So there has to be a kind of a comfort level in knowing that you might only know how, but not that. You know, that you might only know something about what to do next. You might only have a hunch. But so that's what this book is in a way trying to rehearse is a way to see those potentials and see them in space. I would think that I should know a lot about many different technologies, that I should know about economy, that I should know about medicine and epidemiology. But I think there's something under-rehearsed in culture about simply knowing things about spatial practices, Mm -hmm. heavy spatial practices, potentials in arrangement. And being able to see whether one arrangement or another has the potential to reduce violence or um, reduce carbon emissions or reduce vehicle miles traveled or increase enfranchisement or reduce the possibilities of murderous policing. Or I mean, there are spatial practices that can address all of those things. And I think culture is under-rehearsed in them. So among all the other things that we have intelligence about, I'm really just trying to add that to the mix. Again, emphasizing mix. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Yeah, how to cook versus knowing a recipe, knowing the general principles as opposed to just the itemized directions. 
Yeah. When you were mentioned yes and, I then thought about truth and comedy, which is like the improv manual, and maybe oh, it's true. It's very. Like it is actually of, that's actually true. This whole book is a kind of I mean, like medium designing relations, but in order it's to all about interplay, yeah, interplay. And that's true. And yeah, messiness and not a concrete prescription of that's how true. to do something. So Finding yeah, taking the lessons of sure. improv into architecture as opposed to <laughs> theater. I think <laughs> sketch well, comedy. Well, theater. Yeah, I mean yeah. that is right. That is yeah. Brought me back to that <laughs> that book, but uh, I was also uh, wanted to mention in terms of you talking about space and how they can uh, mitigate problems or violence. Um, I was reading something recently, which is a study on violence in the black community in the United States, like lateral violence, but between members of the community. And it was mentioned that like a lack of the lack of privacy and not digital privacy, which seems to be the only kind people really talk about the lack of like actual physical privacy, like the lack of having your own room actually was a catalyst for the desire to have a sense of ownership over a piece of the common shared space, i.e., gangs and territory and neighborhoods and owning a corner for whatever uh, commercial activity you do on it. And so uh, the idea essentially is that, you know, if public housing or housing in lower income areas, if there was more space, if young men had their own room, had a sense of ownership and privacy over a space, it would help mitigate some of the violence that happens in those communities. And uh, I mean, is this a correct example of medium design, but also I wanted to ask what an organization that focuses on like architectural or medium design solutions to human behavioral problems, like what would those organizations look like or what do they look like if one already exists and it's in a form perhaps I'm not recognizing? Uh, yes, it exists everywhere all around us. I mean, one I gave one example in the book that maybe concentrates some of these factors you're talking about. It was um, Avondale housing. It was a housing, you know, what would some people would have called projects. And it happened to be a place where it had been measured as one of the highest rates of infant mortality. But in this Avondale housing complex, it was the rewiring of those problems that actually started to generate some relief. It was the linking of young mothers with a sort of health champion, another woman in the same complex, that would help them to be healthier and raise children and have a mentor. So for me, it was a good example of that it's not it's not eliminating problems that you want to do. It's trying to desegregate them, integrate those problems, find ways of rewiring the potentials of those problems wherever they are. And that is something, you know, that spatial proximities can do. You know, it's in the kind of community land trusts and so on that that I was talking about in the book. You know, either they are a separate ledger of properties that a community land trust owns. And in that case, they basically have a kind of financial value. And they also have a community value. But if those things are actually cross-referenced spatially, they start to have much more compounding value. And I recognize by using compounding that I'm using a word that's sometimes used in (laughs) finance. But the expectations that we have about something compounding in finance, that's very familiar. 
but it strikes me as odd that we have no sense of what those compounding values are in a space as it's playing out in time. Uh, but to be, have a much more acute sense of how that works is part of what I'm trying to talk about. And it has everything to do with what you're saying. It's an actual room. It's what you can see. It's whether the choir goes to visit the old person's assisted living place. You know, like whether you pass by that place. What do you see when you're going home as a teenager? You know, it's a lot of those things. I mean, that those are some heavy values. Go to a planetary scale instead of a neighborhood scale. It has things to do with the way certain species coordinate. Who wants it wet? Who wants it dry? Who, how does the atmosphere, it's that intercoordination to do with all kinds of variables that Anna Singh talks about or others. Um, I mean, you know, one can go up to the planetary, but one can also go into the digital here. And now that there are the tools for people to design their own communities within certain parameters, these same questions are coming into play. I mean, it's not a physical room, but I would argue that there is a simulation of that. And there's some really interesting people like Jan Berger, who's working in Minecraft, creating digital spaces. And, you know, different digital spaces have different affordances and limitations as well. There's Um, different emergent effects, even. Exactly. Redesigning digital space. I mean, Discord allows quite a good deal of customization within their template, and it's amazing by having, you know, thirty rooms or two rooms, how different the community is. Um, if you place those rooms, they're listed. If you place certain rooms higher or lower, if you have to scroll through certain rooms to get to other rooms, what that means. And so, I think that there is an analogy that can be made to the kinds of digital architectures that are starting to emerge after, because, you know, in Instagram, you're always subject to this, like, kind of autocratic tyrant who's suddenly making all your information visible or connecting you to dead friends or doing something that feels like such a violation and you have no control over it. But now that we're getting into these Web 2.5 and Web 3 or whatever, not to make a successive break, but just to say something that's beyond Web 2, Facebook, um, we are able to see how slight changes, oh, I can opt to make my name anonymous. I can opt to change my name many times. These little things are creating really different kinds of communities. And they're sometimes very small parameters that can make a huge difference at scale. So I think what you're saying is so important. I hope everyone listening really takes note of that as they think about the digital spaces that they're building. Because yes, small changes to spatial relationships, whether that's in digital spaces, Space or in our live space can have huge implications over time and at scale. Conway's game of life. And to, and to what is available to you in space. If, if in a digital world, I might feel more comfortable being another sex or being another gender or trying out another role that then can move between. It's so crucial as a tool for how one can act in other spaces and other environments. Absolutely. And I think there is so much potential in these digital spaces that allow you the ability to change your identity, change the way you are, who you are in these spaces. And I think a lot of, I mean, I'm speculating, a lot of the paranoia around language and about identity was a product of a symptom of these incredibly restrictive Web 2 spaces that made you declare that you're this gender, made you declare that you're this age. Facebook real name policy. Yeah, Facebook real name policy. This mapping of a real person. We talk 
talk about this often on the pod, but I think that like that was a talk about hidden violences. It was a kind of violence. Let's say that you're like non-binary gender saying that you must declare yourself as whatever your license is. That is a kind of limitation, which is going to cause just like the young men that don't have a room of their own, then get into territorial disputes in the space around their home. I think that same effect is what we see spilling, exploding out of Twitter and being devirtualized in acts of sarcastic violence. And so I do think there is potential, you know, maybe Dan, it is through some kinds of blockchain arrangements. Uh, Maybe it's also just in being able to design your own space in what this era that's emerging of digital space might afford us. Sorry, Dan, I know you also were going to say something. (laughs) I mean, I just wanted to talk about real space, but I think it's a fine pivot to go from talking about designing virtual spaces. I was interested, you were talking about land readjustment and community land trust. So first, I was just wondering if you could define what land readjustment, what it is and how it works. Well, this is the next area of research that I'm working on now is looking more deeply at these alternative organs for holding land that ease us out of ideas of property and cadastral mark that have been so violent and that, as we've said before, uh, have you know caused so much automatic harm. So there's a whole lot of these different organs. And what would be wonderful is if they could become more popular tools. Um, you know, there are things like limited dividend corporations. Uh, there are things like community land trusts or agrarian trusts or land readjustment or actually not land readjustment, but cooperative forms of land readjustment that, I mean, we could take them each in turn, but one thing they share is not necessarily allowing a private ownership of the crust of the earth. So the land is, in most of those cases, through different means, held more collectively. And the stuff on top of it, um, house arrangement between house and park, walking distance between house, park, and work, all those things that derive from the arrangement of things on top, those can be rented or sold. And I mean, in each case, depending on what scale you're talking about, there's all kinds of different things that happen. Um, But for instance, in a community land trust, the community has a ground lease on the crust of the earth, and you sell the house, then you sell at a lower cost. So that means that the community is not going to be bought out and gentrified and dispossessed. So that means that I could live in my auntie's house or my grandmother's house. And that has values that are pretty hard to express, um, pretty hard to financialize. Uh, It means that there's a kind of cohesion between what people can see also. So that's a community land trust. I don't know. I don't know whether you want to go. They're each of them yeah. different, but uh, I was also because you mentioned. I think it's was it Dufflo and Banerjee. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but um, talking about doing these randomized trials, it struck me as well. It reminded me of a special economic zone, and I'm wondering how is it different from a special economic zone? What you're calling for, other than a special economic zone with policies that you favor, um, as opposed to ones that are destructive and to labor and environmental law, etc. Um, well, I'd say pretty different. A special economic zone is something that's pretty much a template for unbridled capital accumulation. 
It is about eliminating all obstacles to profit. It is, you know, typically an island of corporate externalizing. It is eliminating taxes. It is eliminating collective bargaining. It eliminates unions, typically banned. It deregulates labor and environmental laws, global compacts. I mean, and each one is different. Each one can have a raft of different exemptions. So this is very different. This is changing the terms of how a number of existing components in a city will, I mean, in some ways it's almost a light change. It's a significant change, but, you know, there still are banking products there. There still are houses. There probably still is somebody who's going to sell that house. But the ability of capital to accumulate and dispossess has been knocked down. I would say it's pretty different from that especially economic zone. I mean, it's diametrically opposed in a way, but it still is about creating state of exception. And I mean, I think also specifically this idea of randomized trials, how can you actually have really randomized trials when there's real people involved ethically? How random can they be? You know, how does that actually look in practice? I completely agree with you. Uh, I mean, the work that Banerjee and Duflo does is to me a completely separate conversation from the land trusts and other things that we were just talking about. That is totally different. Um, And I agree with you completely because they are trying to use a form that was used in drug testing to test economic ideas about how to reduce poverty and, you know, have been highly praised for this. But it is... Very problematic, in my view, because um, on the one hand, to your question, how do you have a randomized trial? It's not really, and they even say in other books, this is based on a hunch in some ways. You know, we're we're working with what we think might, uh, you know, yes, maybe if we we provide a bag of lentils uh, when you go to get your your immunization, that'll be incentive enough for the parent to get the children immunized. And we know that immunization will reduce poverty and increase chances for children to live. But they're just trying that. And there's several dangers there. First of all, you could incentivize anything. And so every time you, you, you have to do a randomized trial for every single thing. And one of the things that I'm saying in the book is maybe it's not the quantifiable proof, but just the idea of interplay itself, you know, <laughs> it's pretty simple, right? You know, it's just the idea that you said, oh, maybe there's some connection between how long the nurse has to stay, the walking distance between the nurse and your village. If we put the nurse here, and yes, we provide a little incentive, we just put a few things together, we will increase the potentials for children to get immunized. And we don't really have to have a randomized controlled trial about this. It's really just the idea of interplay itself uh, or coordination on the planetary scale or any of the things that we've been talking about. Like a how versus a that. In this case, it's really all you need is a how. And if it doesn't work, you'll know quite quickly and try the next. And, as and try to, the next. Yeah. yeah. Remember there's a quote from your book somewhere that was, people in power are too smart to be right. And I've been thinking a lot just in general about how pride was considered the deadliest sin in several major religions. And uh, I wondered if, you know, all the religious emphasis on hubris 
which seems utterly quaint today where not only power practices it, but anyone with Instagram does as well. But maybe that very ancient religious attention on pride and hubris relates to a similar problem you're tapping into. And when it comes to something very uh, like macro design, I mean, oftentimes the people who had that sense of scale were kings and rulers. I mean, how do you play at God's scales without hubris or being corrupted by it? And then does religion have a role in any of this too, religious thinking? Well, I mean, I suppose some of this work is trying to find a way to have some scalable effects without working at God's scale. So it's not, it's not saying you know, that we'll just put artificial intelligence in charge of or something like that. It's not the kind of, it's always going away from the one or the one and only or the one and only thing. Um, I mean, the too smart to be right, I guess, is meaning that to work with an organ or a protocol of interplay, as we were saying before, is to work with something that you know is not going to work. And so trying to find a solution is kind of dumb, weak position and that also sometimes kind of righteous position can only mean if you're going to be constantly disappointed you created mm-hmm. your own tragic end game constantly I mean it's also I mean that little phrase too smart to be right it's also referring to kind of piracy <laughs> like a way of trying to find more intelligence in complication in a long temporal dimension you don't know what the end of it is you know it's also maybe having to do with not being so much of a believer uh, the person with the singular position and the proselytizing disposition i guess i'm just temperamentally not so well suited to that and it can feel too I guess that sounds a little bit sneaky, too, or sly to say too smart to be right, but so probably is. I love that. And I also really like, uh, think it was temperament that you kind of drew a new political compass of both disposition and temperament and your ideological values. But I, I think that's a really nice metric to include because regardless of left or right, there are people whose disposition is more violent or less, mm, right. and that should be accounted for. And I also like how, again, I'm just thinking of these digital worlds, but when you watch your community grow from 50 to 100 to 500 to 1,000, the character is constantly changing and that machine is constantly breaking and you're never going to have a solution to the perfect community structure. There's always going to be somebody who's underserved and somebody who's overserved and you're constantly just changing these parameters. And if you were to say, finally, we have the perfect community, it would actually be a great tragedy because you'd have to build a big wall and then you'd have to just say that nobody else can come in and nobody else can leave and you must follow these rules. And so just that, I think the permission to say that it's always going to be breaking down, that it's going to break. That's what's going to happen. Make peace with that. It's kind of like a death acceptance practice, but like just as a way of going through life, which also lets you be a little bit less fearful. You're not constantly experiencing a future loss. You're integrating that sense of loss into every decision. I'm going to lose something in doing this. Something's going to be lost. I'm giving up something, but that's fine. That's just part of this process. You know, Instead of losing it all, instead of entire structure absolutely falling apart and having to start from the ground up. I don't know if I fed that back the right way, but in my mind, that's a very liberating framework. Yeah, I mean, a, a little bit more about this kind of what you've just been saying. Um, 
I mean, this too smart to be right and sort of idea about ideology. I mean, I, I'm coming from the left, but I'm trying to strengthen the left because power runs rings around singular solutions and singular enemies. And so in addition to opposing capital, you know, one wants to oppose capital and fascism and racism and coloniality and sectarian violence and all of the things that our political superbugs have managed to pass off to non-human agents as well. So it's for me about multiplying different economies mm. so that one is not dominant. Um, mm. uh, not so much about replacing one perfect one with another perfect one. That itself comes with, again, a sense of how power can run rings around us, can run rings around activist positions or especially singular righteous positions. So the solution is adding chaos. Uh, when something's becoming monolithic, add chaos to actually strengthen the, I don't know, the initial spirit of it. So the too smart to be right is also keep them guessing. <laughs> yeah. um, I wonder if though just something practical, but uh, are there any political movements or activities, say, on the left that you think are really effective or the way to do it from your, your perspective or reflecting medium thinking? So much, uh, so much, and especially... I mean, especially now, there's so much. I mean, it's a particular time in the United States where there's a window of opportunity, straight ahead grassroots activism, enfranchisement, the kinds of organizing around Green New Deal. I mean, all of it is I admire and join ranks with Black Lives Matter, another brilliant, elegant um, of generations of brilliant, elegant forms of activism that is having a space to breathe, you know. Uh, so, I mean, it's thrilling. At the same time, you know, one's aware of the real divisions, that Trump is still out there, and that there are, you know, back to this kind of too smart to be right, that there may be forms of hustling that are necessary to trick some of that power out of its binary opposition, out of its hate. I mean, there's some forms of activism which will almost always be oppositional. We will riot, you know, we will sabotage if necessary. I mean, if it takes a threat to capital, that kind of threat, then that's what it takes. Uh, but there may also be in addition, only in addition to that, sometimes people think I mean one or the other. I don't. I mean, in addition to some of those things which are central to activism and always have been, maybe there are some other forms of hustling and uh, lying mm -hmm. and creating other weird forms of Teflon activism that's in some dispositional register. The book tries to look at some of those moments that we could add to the activist repertoire. Again, not replace, but add to the activist repertoire. Some of the same things that superbugs do to get power, you know, two can play at that mm -hmm. game. Reading your book, it was something that was brought back to a more adolescent time in my life, being really into chaos magic and Hakeem Bey and Robert Anton Wilson and the like acid-drenched 20th century uh, 
bad boy philosophy libertines. Uh, but if I'm understanding your you know, critique about deterministic modes of thinking, if I'm understanding it correctly, people should be more comfortable in a state of indeterminacy and not having closure. And I wonder what writers you would suggest people explore to become more comfortable to occupy that zone uh, aside from 20th century acid-drenched libertine philosophers? I also am a a Hawking Bay fan. and um, (laughs) We all secretly are. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm a student of various forms of piracy. Um, That uh, world of a sort of... No, but that's a good question. Um, In relation to these discussions of economy, someone like Miriam Akaba to J.K. Gibson Graham and Ruth Wilson Gilmore are just some of those that that lead away to discourses about anti-capitalism, abolitionism, feminism, social reproduction, mutualism, kinship and care and so on. That leads to many other things. It's a swelling bibliography. Medium design is joining that ongoing conversation I think it really deepens that discussion about not just financial economies, but as J.K. Gibson Graham says, community economies. Yeah, to not just think of financial economies, but to look at all these different economies that are overlapping that make an ecology. You know, I'll, I'll also say that some of that bibliography is also leading away to planetary scale issues and thinking about intermediate organs between the kinds of scale we've mostly talked about today and issues to do with planetary governance and so on. I also wonder if we can ask you if there's anything that you're free reading. Uh, like what's on your nightstand? What am I reading? I don't even know. I also don't have a nightstand. So, um, I'm reading so many. Th- I, I don't know. Maybe I don't have a good answer to this. I did think there were things about the sort of relay of some polymathic thinkers that are in the medium design book that are similar to people I'm often drawn to to read, um, but they're fiction writers and nonfiction writers together. Yeah, I mean, one thing I really appreciate so much about your work is that you do ask us to constantly think on different scales, from the personal to the global. Um, and there's some way that your your book does make it seem possible. It never feels like it's just this futile fight of an individual trying to recycle their soda bottle and what good is that going to do? It does feel like there's a there's a different kind of vision, which is, I don't know, it somehow seems penetrable. Well, I, I hope that there's some of the multipliers that are in these large global organizations that because they exist can be the accelerant of their own reverse engineering. Um, And that might be some way of pointing to another planetary scale of endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Medium Design, it's out now from Verso Press. Keller, thank you so much for your generosity of thinking and your time today. My pleasure. Um, I'm always listening to you all, so it's a pleasure to to be able to talk to you. That's very nice to hear. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Dan well, has breaths of an unanswered question. Oh, yeah. What are you, you going <laughs> to ask no, something? No, no, I just thought it'd be funny to, as a bit to continually interrupt this podcast and ask you questions about having the name Keller, but I didn't do it. <laughs> maybe, ne- maybe next time. It is a last name on, on one side of my family. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, there we go. But it was 
reading about the word Easterling, and I didn't know that the Easterling was actually this first currency of the Hansa who were trading yes. with the tribes of Northern Germany. And that's where we get the pound sterling. But Easterling was this initial currency. Yes. Yes, so you're, the only other person, you're the only other person I've ever met who, who knows this. They, yeah, the British, the, in London, they would refer to them as the Easterlings from, you know, from the East, but the they East. had this really, really nice alloy of silver that they, they liked. And, and the Hansa were very special because very few could make this connection between the European of the 12th, 13th century, if that's right, and the still pagans of the then East on the other side of the Elba. So. Yeah, original free trade crooks and traders. and yeah, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> OG pirate. All right, well... Um, great conversation. I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, thank you again, Keller. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thank yeah, you. Have a great weekend. Bye. Ciao. An extra large thank you to Keller Easterling for joining us to speak about her new book, Medium Design, as well as to the Stolbun Institute for supporting this recording. Keller Easterling's Medium Design, Knowing How to Work on the World, is available now from Verso Books. You can find updates and all of Easterling's work on her website, kellereasterling.com. To see more projects made possible by Stolbun Institute, as well as the rest of the Shadowland season, visit stolbun.institute. New Models is community supported. To access all of our content and join our thriving Discord, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. Our main node for projects and aggregation is newmodels.io. One last reminder to check your temperament. Thank you for listening and see you next episode. <laughs>